So today I'll be reading from John 15, 9 to 17. You can follow along in your Bible or on the screen as I read the passage aloud for us. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. This is God's word. I will uh, be vulnerable and share with you that my intent for this Sunday is to write a mediocre sermon about the most important thrilling topic that's ever been talked about. Um, Because how do you talk about God's love for people? And how do you do it that even encapsulates like half of what God does in the life of a believer? Like our church is full of testimonies to every angle and every dimension of that kind of thing. And yet we'll venture to do it and, uh, and it'll be fun. We're in our series, The Vision is Love, and this talk on the power of love is, is exactly what Jesus is talking about in John 15 verses nine through 17, the scripture we just read. But if you back up, you'll sort of see the context and the metaphor that Jesus is working with to understand what this love is doing and how it's working. So in verses one through seven, Jesus provides this metaphor that God the Father is like a gardener that is lovingly tending to a vineyard of of grapes. And that Jesus is like the vine, the main vine of the the, um, plant. And that his followers, the disciples here sitting in the room with Jesus in the days before Jesus is meant to, is, is, uh, to be uh, arrested and crucified and, and dies, that they are meant to be the branches of that vine that shoot out from that vine in all sorts of different directions and have this resource from the vine that goes out and causes them to grow in different directions and to bear fruit. And, and the metaphor for bearing fruit is like going out into the world with the positive resources that will empower them to move out into that world, specifically move into a time where they would face great trials, specifically the death of their savior, and to go out then and even take that further into the world throughout their lives of following Jesus. And so what is that power, what is that resource that's meant to go through Jesus then into his followers and then bear fruit? Personal fruit, personal resources, personal um, kindnesses, love, assurance, acceptance, personal resources, as well as like public resources of, of love and good deeds and help for the poor and valuing people who are marginalized in their time. What is meant to create that kind of beautiful fruit? And the answer is the love of God, this powerful resource for Jesus's followers, the power that is the love of God. This is particularly relevant in our culture today 
because um, it's sort of an assumed, it's ubiquitous and it is self-evident that love is a good thing. In San Francisco, you know, there's um, hearts, you know, there's like special little hearts all over the city, decorated specifically within their neighborhood. I think one of them had the Yoda on it the other day and my son was like, what is that? And I was like, it's a whole story, you don't know yet. Um, like there's hearts and there's, um, and it love is love and we love love and it's self-evident that love is a good thing. And uh, I love when, I'm gonna pay attention to every time I say the word love apparently today. I've said love already a lot. So I love when a secular historian, thinker, author, cultural commentator can put their finger on like what is going on in our culture that has shaped the way we live and go out in the world. Like Christian, non-Christian, not sure where you stand with God. Like I love when a cultural commentator specifically that does not come from a Christian perspective can put their finger on it and kind of say, this is what we think and the way we are shaped. And I have I've been reading two of those authors that sort of do that. Um, one is Tom Holland. He wrote a book called Dominion, a, hi a history of how Christianity has influenced the West. It's like the byline is something like how the movement of Christianity remade the world. And the other one is Strange Rites, um, New Religions for a Godless World by um, Burton. Um, I'm forgetting her first name. And both of these books sort of put their finger on like, we say we love love. It is nothing new for a preacher or someone else to say love is a good thing that we should live out in the world. Where did that come from? And what do we really think about it? So Tom Holland would say that um, we, even if you're like a secular person, live like some huge percentage of our beliefs and our lives so drastically shaped by Christianity that even if, you're, if you live in the West, even if you're not a very religious person, you're like 85% Christian already. The, the things that you assume to be a good thing, when you use the words equity, justice, love, and peace, the dominant cultural trends of the West, no matter what you believe, are at root and historically have come to you through Christianity. And then, uh, and uh, Jess, what's, what's a Strange Rights? What's her first name? Tara. Tara Burton. I'm asking you because I deleted it from my notes because my first sermon went long and I just put it back in. So, uh, so okay, so, so Burton, she, in Strange Rights, she uses the term remix culture. She says, we love to take old ideas, like right now, our thing is that we take new, uh, old ideas and we remix them, we put a new beat to them, we put them to a new pop star, we, we obfuscate old music trends with um, new music. We, we live in a remix culture that takes old ideas and repurposes them for our purposes and our definition with our presuppositions today and sort of go, we created something beautiful. That's just a thing we do. I remember in like 2003 thinking, um, there's already been three X-Men movies. I don't think we're gonna see any more superhero movies. <laughs> like how many more could they make? You know, they're all the same. Nobody ever dies. The stakes are so low. You know exactly how they're gonna end. Even when someone dies in one movie, you just snap them back into existence in the next movie. The stakes are incredibly low because you can't build a franchise on a dead superhero. And so you know what's gonna happen. They're all the, the same rehash. And that was 2003, 2005. And now there's been like 50 more top uh, bestsellers. We live in a remix culture that takes old ideas, remixes them and says, what about sequel number nine? Or uh, here's a book and let's turn it into a movie and then let's take a, a movie, a book that was a movie and then let's remake it into another movie. We live in a remix culture. We take Tom Holland, Burton, Elizabeth Burton, Tara Burton. Uh, we take these two books to, to sort of put together this idea 
we have an agreement that love is a good thing. There is a lot of definition, uh, uh, agreement on the definitions of what that love looks like, justice, equity, inclusion, kindness, um, others-centeredness. Those things have come to us as a resource from Christianity. And Tom Holland would criticize people like, like the Beatles, that they would write a song, um, all you need is love, love is all you need. And then people would go, we agree with that. And then Tom Holland would, this is Tom Holland, the historian, not the young man bitten by a spider and then given superpowers. It's all very confusing, actually. <laughs> Both of them British, funny enough. Um, Tom Holland, the historian, um, would, he criticizes the Beatles by saying, you wrote a song, All You Need Is Love, and we agreed with it because Christianity defined love for us and then brought it to us, and we said, yes, that's a good thing. And then the next song, after the, the death of Martin Luther King and a need for a vision for world peace, John Lennon then writes the, the song Imagine, which has sort of become, in Tom Holland's mind, the atheist worship song, like the anthem of a, a, a desire for world peace. And imagine a world with no possessions, and no religion too. Of course, Tom Holland points out that the song Imagine, Imagine a World with No Positions was written literally in a mansion, so that's kind of funny. Uh, and then Imagine No Positions, and it's like just in my bedroom that's like <laughs> 2,000 square feet, you know. Um, imagine that, but Im the vision that John Lennon had for peace in the world is that imagine we all just level out our ideas and nobody, um, nobody has any religion. That's a way forward for unity. Whatever it is, Tom Holland and, and, and uh, uh, Strange Rights author is saying the same thing, which is we take this idea from Jesus that was a resource, but then we hold it differently now. And we tend to remix it and say, we love love. And now our definition of love is this. And then the question is, does that remixed love have the same power as the original tune did? Like, does our tendency to say, we love love, my definition of it, and I think the critique is, is it then made in our image? Is there any power behind it that can empower us to do anything new? Jesus, like Jesus, plain old Jesus, the plain old, old God, um, is telling us something profound about love. This is relevant in our culture and it's relevant because it's annual vision and prayer weekend. And it is our intent tonight to talk through how God has moved in and through our church in the last year and to talk about what we perceive God doing in our church now that will propel us into the next year and what that vision is. And so with those two things in mind, sort of the cultural relevance of defining what love power from God is and the relevance within our church community about how we can have a power to live out the mission that God has called us to, I'd like to walk through three types of love that Jesus gives us in John 15 that would then empower us and compel us to live out the vision of our church. So we're gonna talk about three things. One, a complex love that creates community, a subversive love that follows Jesus, and a world of love that seeks renewal. A complex love that creates community. Jesus offers us a powerful love that empowers us and frees us and forms us into a community together. But the limiting factor of our growth in God's love, the maturity of our faith, is that many of us have a very one-dimensional view of what the love that comes from God is like. We have an sim overly simplistic view of what that love is like for us. It's like 
there are almost three levels of love, three dimensions of love, and that God's love is very multifaceted. And I'll give you an explanation of sort of these tiers as I perceive them and then give you an example. There's sort of a superficial love that's very self-referential, a love that is mostly about what you can do for me or what I perceive you from the outside to be, but not looking into the object of love all that deeply. And then there's secondly, a kind of love that grows deeper into, I see more of who that person is, or in our uh, example here, who God is, and I see more of the character behind it, and I'm, I'm drawn to a deeper kind of love. And then there's like a third tier of love that says I'm, I'm in awe and wonder at how wide and deep and long and colorful and moving and, and shifting and how relevant the love is and it's a bit more of a worshipful kind of love. And I'd like to give you an example in romantic love from um, William Wordsworth, 1700s romantic poet. I know you thought, you woke up this morning and you were like, I hope they talk about Wordsworth. <laughs> William Wordsworth, 1700s English romantic poet, he writes this poem in three movements that map this three different kinds of love. She was a phantom of delight when first she gleamed upon my sight. Her eyes as stars of twilight fair, like twilights to her dusky hair, a dancing shape, an image gay to haunt, to startle, and waylay. You see, in the first part of this poem, Wordsworth is describing the woman that he would marry his first time seeing her. It's an external view. She's a shape, but she's not a person yet. He loves her, but he loves something about her, and it, it's almost a self-referential kind of love. But see how the love grows deeper as he sees something different inside of this woman that he would marry. I saw her upon nearer view, a spirit, yet a woman too. Her household motions light and free, and steps of virgin liberty. A creature not too bright or good for human nature's daily food. From, for transient sorrows, simple wiles, praise, blame, love, kisses, tears, and smiles. And then the poem moves into its third movement where he realizes that all of his love to this point, it was one-dimensional before, then it became two-dimensional kind of love where he says he sees a character in her, he sees the way she's been wonderful through the highs and lows of life as he's married this woman. But then he moves onto this third dimension of seeing love in this woman that he's married. And now I see with eye serene the very pulse of the machine, a being breathing thoughtful breath, a traveler between life and death. The reason firm, the temperate will, endurance, foresight, strength, and skill. A perfect woman, nobly planned, to warn, to comfort, and command, and yet a spirit still and bright with something of angelic light. I think so, I see some people kissing back there. Can we just stop? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, and a side note, you know, you got, uh, things, it's just like some married couples are like. Uh, Valentine's Day is coming up, by the way. If your wife is not here, you're welcome for this poem that you will then recite to her. Here's, Wordsworth is making this point. He's saying, of course, love grows deeper, but the process of growing into mature, deep, real love is that you see something at first that is one-dimensional. And the process of seeing the depth and beauty and the color, it, it is... It's the effort of us, it's, it maps onto the same level of us growing in the love of God, that love has, the love that God has for us. 
that at first, or maybe not just when you're a new Christian, but if you're somewhat of a stunted Christian in terms of your spiritual growth, that you have a very one-dimensional kind of love. Here's what it's like. I know what to expect from God. It's not gonna change too much of what I expect. He does this for me. I do this for him. That's a one-dimensional love. And then you start to look deeper into the machine, into the pulse of the machine, as Wordsworth says. And you see something about what God has done for you and a sacrifice for you and a knowing of you and the breadth of God's love and the narrowness and the specific nature you have. And that's like a second dimensional love. And then you look deep, deeper in still and it becomes an experience. Um, it becomes something that melts you and empowers you at the same time. Um, I wanna walk through just a few of the aspects of God's love that are given to us from our passage, but no, this is one section of scripture that Jesus is um, giving us an insight into. If you look in verse nine, you see something about how the love that the Father has for Jesus is then given to us. He says, John 15, nine, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. So he's saying there's a kind of love that you can kind of not remain in, but that there's an action that you can have with Jesus that's, that you abide in it, that you're connected to it like a branch is connected to a vine. But the one thing that we gain from Jesus on the cross is, that, is this statement here in verse nine. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And by proxy, Jesus is kind of saying, if you keep with me in this story, you're gonna see through his death on the cross and the union that we have with God through Jesus' sacrifice that God then, because of Jesus' sacrifice, loves you, Christian, follower of Jesus, just as much as God the Father loves his, his obedient son. Like Jesus, the one who is worthy of God's love, God the Father's affections, the one who has earned it, the one who has showed up and has this unbroken eternal connection with God the Father, through his death on the cross, gives you the life and uh, eternal life and uh, connection with God that only he deserves and earned and, and takes on the sin that, that um, uh, let me say this one more time, that he takes on the thing that you deserve and that gives you the thing that only he deserves for his obedient, obedience. Um, that is the kind of connection that we will flesh out in about one minute in the topic of community. But before we move on, I wanna talk about the other dimensions of the love. If you look in verse 11, we see that Jesus wants your best for you. He calls you to obedience and he calls you to live out something like radical and different, but he explains why in verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 11. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. But it's not just that, it's in verse 13 that this love doesn't take just romantic form, but it's friendship love. Like that's kind of the funniest thing about this love is that in the modern West, we make a big deal about romantic love and just the cultural waters that we swim in, we just, we don't tend to make much of a deal of friendship love. It's just like not a part of who we are nearly as much. Like what, what does it look like to have like a deep, abiding, trusting friendship love? But he says this very thing. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for a friend. 
And you can't read John 15 without remembering John chapter one and John chapter three where John reminds us, describes to us, announces to us that Jesus is a cosmic savior. He's not just a personal savior, he's a cosmic savior. Look in um, John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save the world through him. If you look in the first part of that verse, God loved the world. Jesus, in John 1, came into the world so that he would save it. Jesus is like a cosmic lover of every person in the world. He loves everyone. But it doesn't just stop there, because that would be a very flat, wide kind of love, because it's not just that, and it's not a different love, it's different aspects of God's love. He, God loves everyone such that he sent his son to us, for us. And then, for the purposes of that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. That's a very narrow kind of love, aspect of love. It's an acceptance and an eternity and a knowing and a relationship that you could never have unless you were saying, Jesus, I need you. And, and, and so that opens us up into a deeper kind of love. So his love is wide and its love is narrow. The reason I mention this is because I think there's some people who really wanna broaden God's love by saying, God just kinda generally loves everyone and that's like the main way that God loves people. But if that's the, if that's the only way that you think about God's love is very one-dimensional, it's very flat and wide. And I think there are some people, probably mostly Christians, who are like, my predominant view and dimension of God's love is very narrow. Like, I kind of know who God's people are and mostly who they aren't. And God mostly just works with this narrow group of people. And, that, and that's a very narrow view of God. But it's both. They're both aspects of God's love. If you read Psalm 145 as a proof text for this very thing, you'll see that God, it says God provides for everyone in Psalm 145 that God um, gives to every kind of person and that God lifts up the heads of all the downtrodden. And then in the, in the next part of that passage, kind of in the middle of Psalm 145, it says, for those who call out to him in truth, those are his people. That's very narrow. His love is wide, his love is deep. God loves you cosmically. God loves San Francisco cosmically, widely. And God has a special love that's for you that's accessible only through Jesus Christ for the people who respond to him and call on his name in truth. How does that, how does that change us in community? My, my main example here would need to be a, a more deep kind of community because there's only so much community that can happen over like church coffee, which I love our church because it's like pretty good for, it's like really good for church coffee. But like there's only so much that can happen in a in like noisy lobby for church. And it is so encouraging and empowering to be a, a, here for a Sunday morning, and this is where we collect sort of like, I don't even know, there's just so much stuff that God does on a Sunday morning here. And then those like CGs are something very special, the community groups, because you're just sitting with like six other messed up people like actually getting to know, like past the pleasantries, past that first round, and then you get to know them and you go, you know you always do this thing, right? And then you call, you're able to lovingly call that out because you're empowered by the love that's been given to you in Christ. Because you go, I'm not brought near to God by my performance, and so I can live out God's love for every other kind of person within my circle. Like, I can accept you and love you because I've been brought near to God, not for my ability to fake it or to make it. 
God's love goes out to all kinds of people. And so uh, when you're in those circles of knowing people, you can look to people who have way less status than you in the eyes of the world, but are, are speaking into your life, investing into you, and instructing you about how you should take next steps in your faith. So that the, 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 the heart of it is, I want your joy to be made complete in Jesus, just like my joy is made complete in Jesus. So that's how it builds community as well. It breaks down social barriers and status barriers because we're all leveled sort of at the foot of the cross, but now freed up to be a community of redeemed people together. But that breaks down all the social status that you might carry as sort of your main way of working in the world. Like you might have a pretty solid title. Uh, at some point the YouTube algorithm started pushing to me YouTube uh, reels of like, tell us your total comp. And people are like, oh, this is my moment. You know, and they'll say like 400 grand. And they're like, I only work one hour a week, you know. And that's like their whole, like that's just like, People love talking about total comp in SF, you know? And uh, like that might be your status, that might be your fruit in the world, but like all that stuff's getting leveled, pruned, cut off, regrown through the resources of God's love, it creates community. And I need to move on because I've been going too long. This is Jesus' command, love each other. And his love is a resource for us. Secondly, it's a subversive kind of love that follows Jesus. It's a subversive kind of love that follows Jesus. We already saw that the Father's love for Jesus is the pattern for how he loves us. But now secondly, um, the Son's obedience to the Father maps onto our obedience to the Son in the same way. Here, the love that we're talking about when I say subversive love that follows Jesus is that by nature, the love of God is countercultural and it is subversive to these like, the dominant just like power structures of the world cosmically. And I say that sort of freely, not because I'm trying to just get sociopolitical, but when you read the Gospel of John and all of John's writings, when he uses the world, he is always talking about these larger systems that God's love intervenes in. Uh, Paul and other writers use the world as like the people of the world, but John's using the world as in that more like large scale sense. And so God's love is like subversive to that. His love attracts us and compels us to love differently. And that's the process of Christian growth and following Jesus as well. So I talked about Tom Holland, the historian. Uh, he has an, a forthcoming book where he writes about the Pax Romana and just describes that um, the Pax Romana was the Roman peace of the first century that existed in Jesus's time. But a better description of the, the Roman peace is the Roman pacification because it's a very top-down authoritarian kind of peace that subjugates people. And it's in that, um, that context of Roman empire and th the context of the fastest growing religious group in the world to that point, which was the worship of Caesar, that are linked and brought together in the time of Jesus. Like if you read the New Testament under Western eyes, you wouldn't, you wouldn't realize that the fastest growing, probably one of the largest religions in the world and the most powerful empire were actually the same thing in the time. And so Jesus um, says, I'm gonna be your king, like a cosmic king, and I've come to save all the people that you know. And I'm gonna do it by dying on a cross the lowest form of death from the most authoritarian, powerful empire that the world's ever seen 
and that is gonna be my power to change the world. It's incredibly subversive. And, the, and that cruciform, cru- cross-shaped lifestyle is what shapes us and, and moves us, loves us into a different kind of lifestyle so that our affections fall on God. Um, in the Western world, we tend to think that most of our religious interaction with God is like a cognitive one. I believe this, I assent to these kinds of doctrines, I adhere to this kind of system, and it's very sort of left-brained and very structured. But in what Jesus is getting at here in John 15 is something that is meant to be like fierce allegiance to God, obey my commands, and I love you, and we're meant to live in a loving relationship, and it's both. Like if you look in, in verse 10, he says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Like there is a kind of remaining and abiding in God's love that will only really happen through the obedience. Because he's saying, if you go further in the verse, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Now I think if you use your left brain Western mind, you might see that conditional sentence, if then, and you might think, oh, I get it, it's conditional. There's a logic uh, thing that you could track here. If I obey, to the extent that I obey, then God loves me. I think that's like, it's made its way into our mind. But that conditional sentence is a little bit different, I think, in Jesus's intent here. He's saying, and assuming that you will keep my commands because we're abiding together because I've loved you so much. Now, given the fact that this free grace has come to you and you're my people, now, to the extent that you remain in my love, you will see a new kind of love because your affections will be on me and your life will be in me and your allegiance will not go out to the gospel of Caesar. I'll be your gospel. Your sacrifice will not go out to the temple of Caesar, which happened in the, in the Roman worship cult, but I'll be your temple that was torn down and rose from the dead, and I will be your final sacrifice, atoning for your sin on the cross so that no other sacrifices will ever need to be made. Jesus is saying, I have to be your everything for your greatest good. I have to be your obedience, and I have to be your love. You have to tie those things together. And I will uh, just give you one quote from a a scholar, uh, James K. A. Smith, Augustinian scholar at Calvin College. He wrote a book called You Are What You Love. And the thesis of the book is saying, Western Christians, way too left brain thinking, I gotta just study my Bible more and I'll finally break through if I just know some Greek and some Hebrew. And if I just listen to another sermon, it'll, be, it'll help me sort of get over the top and I'll finally make some, uh, have some power for life change in my life. And this is what James Smith says. Discipleship, Christian growth, we might say is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive to, uh, to and intentional about what you love. So discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than of knowing and believing. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all. Jesus says in verse 14 and 15, if I could jump back into our passage, You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. It's not just just friend love, but now he's empowering you with his business, with his, his work in the world and entrusted you with a part of that. 
And we're meant to, he's meant to be, in James Smith's words, he's meant to be our all in all. Over and against what is powerful, what wins in the corporate sphere, what feels right in the moment, like he's meant to have total allegiance, even when it costs us something, knowing that his allegiance to us was radical and subversive and grace-filled as well and cost him something. And thirdly, we are empowered to love others and seek renewal in our city through a world of love. Our vision statement says that we're a community seeking renewal in our city. What we mean by that is that we're looking for like a holistic, we're looking for God to do holistic, spiritual renewal, physical, emotional, urban renewal, interpersonal renewal, social renewal, etc. This is the master's business that Jesus is cluing us into. We're a part of God's work. And not only that, but we're a part of God's work in a globally significant city. Like, even if you feel like you're some very tiny part of what God is doing, you're in one of the most influential places that has ever existed. And God has put you here. And he's placed you as a missionary, a missionary outpost. You might live in a 10 by 10 apartment. You're like, how do I pay 2,500 bucks for this? Like, you know, like you're going like, I, I don't, I feel, I feel tucked away. I feel insignificant. I feel like a very small part of it. Cities make you feel that way sometimes. And it makes sometimes you feel very isolating. And yet God's love like shot into your heart says, I'm, I'm a part of the master's business, like everywhere I go. And we're here to seek renewal. Again, verses 15 and 16. I no longer call you servants. You're not just my servants. Because the servants don't know the master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. And everything I've learned from my father, I have made known to you. Which is kind of cool. He's giving you the resources from the father. And he's saying, I'm, I'm giving you a clue into what really matters in the world. In verse 16, and you did not choose me. This is the second part that's so powerful. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. That has eternal significance. That chose is language from the other vine language that exists in the Old Testament, that Israel is God's appointed people, not because of their obedience, but because of God's initiating love. And he's extending that now to you and me, saying you're chosen and plugged in and grafted into a vine. And it is my joy, Jesus is saying, to give you these resources and to watch you grow and to see where you go and to see what kind of fruit that you bear. That's Jesus's intent here. Another part of the metaphor is the friend metaphor. He's saying, I'm entrusting you and appointing you and giving you a role to rule and reign with me in a sense in the cosmic kingdom of God now that is in breaking and will be true in Jesus's return. The power of our mission of renewal is the, the breadth of God's love. We said he loves widely and it's the, the depth of God's love that is narrow just for those who believe, like there's a different kind of relationship there. But it's not just that, it's the length of God's love because God's love for you will never end. You know, in the, in the Eastern religions, there's not a personhood. The kingdom of your future is not a personhood. In fact, it's kind of the idea in the Eastern religions that, that your, your consciousness and your personhood is actually a, a mirage, and that when you die, your personhood will get absorbed in sort of the all soul, and then um, and, and there's not an eternal you. There's not really a you now, and there's not an eternal you, but that's not the vision for the kingdom that Jesus is presenting to us here. 
Jesus gave us a kingdom where you exist and like you receive love now in, in response to the gospel message about Jesus and that lasts for eternity. And you go on for eternity with your culture. Like the cooking in heaven, it's gotta get so good at some point where you're like the ultimate taco, you know, the ultimate redeemed taco. Um, like, you, your culture goes on for eternity. Your memories, your, I don't, I can't how to explain all of it, but like your, your life, you go on for eternity and you receiving that love, going deeper into that love, now unbroken in Jesus' return in heaven, our life with Jesus forever, um, that's you, that's your destiny, that's your future, that's the, the hope, that's the future we have that fuels a thing now that we call hope, like a power now that we call hope. To the extent that we live in that future today, we will be renewal people because we'll have emotional resources because we're gonna say the love that I have now, I'm not scrounging for it now because I'm, I'm, I'm destined for a world of love. And the, the riches and the, the time and the, the who I am is not gonna be degraded by going through trials today because I'm destined for a world of love that will last for eternity with this God of love. And so you can take a hit, you can take a loss, you can spend emotional energy, you can lose status, knowing that what brought you near to God was Jesus losing his status for you, and then now saying, the status that I will receive in, with God, unbroken for eternity, is a status that no tower, no title, no total comp could ever match. And that's you. It's not you losing yourself to become like a ghost floating on a cloud in heaven and, and losing your consciousness. It's you with God forever. I, um, I was, like I told you before, like my hope was actually like this, is like, let's do a mediocre sermon about the best topic that's ever existed. Let's just like, maybe it'll be like five minutes too long, you know? Maybe it'll lose a few people because there's too many quotes. But like, let's do a mediocre sermon, but like pray and what I hope is like, God loves me way more than I gave him credit. And that can be a resource and a power that more than I have really lived out in the world. God, what fruit do you wanna bring out in me that would be different than I've seen in myself in the past? That's my hope. And I wanna close with this. Um, oh, I was gonna tell you that I was um, speaking of mediocre sermons. I had the most powerful time in prayer this morning. Like, uh, I don't know, the average week of preparing a sermon is like, what the heck, this is gonna be the stupidest thing I've ever written. And then you study some scripture, and then you go, okay, well, at least the scripture's cool. Uh, let's make an outline that maybe everything starts with the same letter, it'll make it memorable, <laughs> I don't know. And then you kind of move forward in the sermon writing process, and then, um, like, sometimes it just, it gets to be like such a wash and it's such a mess. And the reason I tell you this is like, um, it's so powerful to just sit with our prayer team this morning, and then be like, uh, God loves our congregation so much more than like a pastor could ever love a congregation. And God knows each of you so powerfully the type of fruit that he's going to bear and where he's gonna take you. And my hope is that we, I don't know, have, um, I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good and I pray that that is the case with you. That there's a way that God's love for you goes beyond the cognitive and into the experiential. Now, next Thursday, whatever, when, whenever. Because your future is destined for like a, a date with destiny with 
God. I wanna read you a quote from Jonathan Edwards. He wrote a, a, a treatise on heaven and it's called Heaven is a World of Love. Jonathan Edwards starts the treatise by describing the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in God's self, there is a world of love that doesn't need anything else to be perfected. And thus, it makes sense that God didn't create the world or create you or seek you out because you complete him. God was complete. Imagine, he says, the Father, who so loved the world that he sent his begotten Son, there dwells Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Prince of Peace and Love, who so loved the world that he shed his blood and poured his soul out to death for it. There the Holy Spirit the, of divine love in whom the very essence of God, as it were, all flows or is, or is breathed forth in love in the hearts of all the church, Romans 5.5. 5. So imagine, he says, imagine the Trinity as perfect love and now for eternity you are brought into it from God's grace. This is what it would look like, and I'll close with this. There in heaven, this fountain of love, this eternal three-in-one is set open without any obstacle to hinder access to it. There, this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory in beams of love. There, the Trinity loves one another and loves us. There, the fountain overflows in streams and rivers of love and delight. Enough for all to drink at it and to swim in, yea, so as to overflow the world, as it were, with a deluge of love. We are so loved that now our calling is to be in a city like San Francisco and act out a deluge of love. And I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna prove to you that God loves San Francisco just with a very simple equation. I'm sure, I, I wonder if you've heard something like this before. Um, God loves San Francisco because... God loves people more than trees. Would, wouldn't you agree? Yes. God, uh, most neighborhoods in San Francisco have more people than trees, right? Uh, therefore, God loves San Francisco more than probably anywhere else in the world. <laughs> uh, that, think about the neighborhood. Like when I drive, I live in the sunset, I work in the mission, and so I drive over Clipper Street, like over the hill. And I see all of the city every morning. And I've sort of put, had it in my heart since I've lived here, to pray for our city and pray for renewal every day when I drive over a clipper. Unless someone's like cutting me off and then I'm like, you know, and then like you forget to pray. But like on a good day, uh, like I'm praying every day, finding something new to pray for every day, but praying for renewal in our city. God loves every person in our city widely. And then there's this group of people subversively having every part of their heart on Jesus so that their joy may be complete. And in that, there's something growing, a fruit that is being born, that's coming out every day with you. And I pray that that is even more the case as we live out our calling in Jesus. Let's pray.